Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World, with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever-evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic, food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Greetings, everybody, from the Sunshine State. My name is Alan Weiner, and I'm your host for Food Forward, Nourishing the World, here on Voice America. Each week, we will explore the innovations and trends shaping the future of food. From sustainability to technology, we'll uncover the flavors of tomorrow. Plainly speaking, we will discuss all things food, some crucial to our well-being and some just for fun. This week, our topic is flavors of fermentation. We have two special guests that we'll get to in a moment, but first a word about the show. If this is your first time tuning in, then welcome. If you've heard our previous shows, welcome back. A word about the mission of Food Forward Nourishing the World. Each week, with experts at the top of their game in the food world, we will educate and entertain the listener. Now, without bombarding you with do's and don'ts, if each week there is one takeaway that could change your life in some way, well, we've done our job. If you miss an episode of Food Forward Nourishing the World, it will be available after airing on my Voice America show page and through all leading podcast platforms. Think of it as radio on demand. Now the audience is crucial to the future of Forward. I want to hear with you. You can email me at alan at foodforwardradio.com and or follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And please share the show with your friends. Today, we have a very special guest joining us. Hannah Crump, widely known as the Kombucha Mama. Hannah has been brewing and studying the fermented tea known as kombucha for over two decades. She's the founder of Kombucha Camp, the leading online resource for all things kombucha and the author of the book, The Big Book of Kombucha, which I have sitting next to me right here, an autographed copy. Hannah will be sharing her wisdom about the health benefits of kombucha and the best practices for brewing your own batch at home. Hannah, welcome to Food Forward. Thanks for having me, Alan. Great to be here. Now, before we start, you know, you and I are familiar with kombucha, been around it for a long time. Tell people exactly what kombucha is. Simply fermented tea. So just like wine is fermented grape juice, and sourdough is fermented wheat and yeast. Uh, kombucha is a fermented tea. So we sweeten tea, tea and sugar. We add our mother culture to it called a SCOBY, which stands for symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. Give it about a week or so, and voila, you've got kombucha. So if I want to make kombucha at home, and we'll get to a little bit of DIY, how do I get my hands on a SCOBY? A SCOBY is best sourced from a trusted source. So that could be a good friend who's making kombucha. And of course, kombucha camp, camp with a K because we're cute and clever over here. Um, we're bacteria farmers. And so we've been cultivating our SCOBY for over 20 years. We test it on a regular basis. It's really a high quality starter. Now, some folks will also try to grow a SCOBY from a commercial brand. And that's a really fun experiment to do to test that brand to see how reproductive it might be, but oftentimes due to processing and different things that need to happen in order to mass produce kombucha, it may not have the same diversity and robustness 
as an authentic mother culture would from, say, kombucha camp or a friend who's making it. Definitely. And you should tell people what happens with a SCOBY um, while it's brewing and after it's brewing, which allows people to share their kombucha SCOBY. I love kombucha. She has taught me so many lessons about life. And one of them is abundance in action. There is abundance around us everywhere. And she's highly reproductive. So that means as soon as you have a, mo a mother SCOBY, she's going to make a baby. And that baby can either be saved in a SCOBY hotel or she can be passed on to friends. And of course, there's loads of other uses for SCOBYs in the book and on our Kombucha Camp website. Um, I can tell you that we have several SCOBY hotels and we've given uh, SCOBYs away to a lot of people. Uh, and I think we've done our best to get people to, to make their own kombucha. Now, this isn't something that fell from the sky for you. How did you fall into this? Well, honestly, Alan, it kind of was. I call it kombucha kismet. I had never heard of kombucha. I'd never tried kombucha. And I went to visit a friend in San Francisco back in 2003. And lo and behold, one of the things in his very groovy San Francisco apartment was kombucha. And I saw it floating there in the jars. We didn't taste it. But that word stuck in my mind. So when I went back to Los Angeles and walked into a Whole Foods, lo and behold, there were shelves full of kombucha that I just had never noticed before. And I tasted my first kombucha before I even left the store. Now, let me ask you this. I always pause in the story here to ask, what was your first sip of kombucha like, Alan? Thank you for asking. So my wife and I were living in, in Austin, Texas, and a physician recommended to my wife that she try an alkaline diet for her health. And in researching that, we saw the kombucha is a very highly alkaline product and probiotics. And we'll get into that. Um, so at that time, Whole Foods in Austin was still Whole Foods prior to Amazon's purchase. And they actually had um, a, a bar that not only served soda and juices, serve this weird thing called kombucha. And we tried it and absolutely loved it. And this was about 12 to 15 years ago. And at that time, and we'll get into this next, um, there were maybe two commercial brands that were available. Um, and now, you know, there's all kinds of brands. So that's how I, I became hooked on it. Uh, and my tastes obviously have changed over the years. But in my, so for me, it was, ah, the heavens opened up, the angels were singing. I was sad at the time. Standard American diet had no fermented foods, and my body just loved the nutrients and enzymes that were instantly uplifting my whole body. Now, here's the secret. I was a pickle juice drinker. So even though my mom would tell me, don't drink that pickle juice, it's too salty and sour, I absolutely loved it. So I think you know, just talking about it, my taste buds start to, I just start salivating, but I really fell in love with it. And here's what happened. My thirst outgrew my budget. That's why I started making it. I had seen my friend's mysterious jars. It was getting expensive. And so I sourced a SCOBY locally in Los Angeles and the rest is history. Now, did you experiment with different teas and sugars um, in, in over the years that you've made it? Absolutely. So that's one of the fun things about kombucha is once you learn the rules, you can break them in so many fun and creative ways. And so kombucha was originally brewed with black tea, and that's what gives it that signature 
malic acid, apple cider flavor to it. But when you start brewing with green tea, white tea, and all different types of teas, you definitely get different flavor profiles. And over time, I developed Hannah Special Tea Blend, which is an all-organic blend of green tea, black tea, white tea, rooibos, and yerba mate. So rooibos and yerba mate are not tea, rather they're herbal tisans. Um, and that's what's really fun about kombucha and all those extra scobies you have in your hotel is you can start experimenting. People make hibiscus kombucha cinnamon kombucha with no tea at all. So if you're sensitive to caffeine, you can definitely experiment. Now, the thing is, sometimes those won't reproduce additional scobies or they'll weaken over time. And that's why we always want to make sure our original mother is kept in a tea and sugar mixture. Um, but you can try things like honey. So we have Jun, which is kombucha's raw honey cousin. And the unique bacteria in the raw honey are part of that fermentation process. So some folks will try to do it with a kombucha scoby but it'll often fail right at first. So either you have to gradually cultivate it over or we have jun cultures, which are adapted already to that green tea, raw honey mixture. But you could use pasteurized honey or you could even go with some of the more mineral rich sugars like jaggery or piloncillo. That is going to change the fermentation process because there's more minerals present. It activates the yeast and it can sour a little more quickly. So anytime you're experimenting, just taste more frequently keep an eye on everything, and then harvest it when it has that flavor profile you like best. Let me ask you this. Um, a lot of people who, after drinking a commercially made kombucha and then make their own, have difficulty matching the flavor, which leads to a process called secondary fermentation. Can you explain um, what happens in secondary fermentation? Yes. So, so in primary fermentation, as we've already described, it's tea, sugar, scoby. And we try to keep it simple so that nothing interferes with the bacteria in the mother culture. Once we harvest that kombucha, we remove the scoby, the mother and the daughter. We set aside some kombucha for our next batch. We want to do that right away um, because we want to keep the yeast and bacteria in balance. And then we can go to our garden, our farmer's market, or just our imagination. And in our book, the big book, we have 260 flavor inspirations um, where you can try all different kinds of herbs, flowers, and even make savory kombuchas. So we have some recipes in there with mushroom with, you know, if you want to get really wacky bacon or um, different things like this. But it's such a lovely canvas that you can really paint with flavor in kombucha. So I started with flavor sitting right outside my front door. We had a Meyer lemon tree. I was growing thyme. And of course, strawberries are quite plentiful in California. And that's how pink lemonade, the flavor that my husband really loves, got started. And then the flavor that I like best that I make the most is Love Potion 99. And that's blueberry, lavender and rose. And I use lavender petals and rose petals and um, fresh blueberries or frozen. So there's so many different ways we can do that. Usually then we need to strain those fruit and flavors out after a couple of days so that they don't get funky. And then we can rebottle it and let it carbonate a little bit more naturally in the bottle. So let me ask you this. Um... Right now, I, I've noticed a change when I go into stores like Sprouts and Whole Foods, where I find most of my vegan products being a vegan, in that they used to have a very robust uh, assortment of kombucha brands. And now it seems like they're fighting for shelf space against probiotic sodas, which are good in their own right. Um, and some of the, you know, myriad sparkling water drinks. Is that just something that I've noticed or is that 
something that's really happening in the marketplace? It's definitely happening in the marketplace. And I think it's because people still don't fully understand the value of fermentation. So I am going to knock those probiotic soda drinks because often they're a single strain. And as we know from studying the gut microbiome, what's most important is diversity. And diversity is what you get in traditional fermented beverages. And so it, it's kind of unfortunate that we're seeing that displacement, but I think it just really comes down to learning more about it. And a lot of those beverages are actually prebiotic, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because we do want to feed those bacteria, but they're putting fibers in there that probably you should get from different sources other than liquefied in a beverage. And so, you know, I think the value proposition of kombucha is the fact that it's fermented, it's got great organic acids, it has prebiotic, probiotic, postbiotic, it's got all the biotics because it's alive. So um, it's definitely something that we've noticed a trend in. However, I think we're gonna see a shift back towards more living beverages like kombucha, like water kefir um, as time goes on. Definitely. Um, we have a limited amount of time left, but I did want to touch on something we discussed um, prior to the show, and that was sugar content. Now, because I'm diabetic, I'm very careful about the sugar content uh, in the kombucha that we buy. And I don't like going above 12 carbs per serving. Um, is that pretty common? Uh, and also the labeling how good is the labeling when it comes to sugar content? Oh man, I'm so glad we're talking about this because it's very confusing. According to the FDA rules, because we use sugar in primary fermentation, even though it's fermented and we don't add any additional sugar to the finished product, it has to be put into added sugars, which really confuses people because they think we're adding sugar after the fermentation process, which is not correct. Moreover, this sugar is pre is fermented, which means it's already pre-digested. So instead of consuming table sugar or sucrose, it actually has a lower glycemic load because it's been reduced to fructose and glucose. And so it's the little bit of sugar that helps the medicine go down is what you're seeing in kombucha. And so it can be challenging looking at those labels because they seem very confusing. Now, here's another great uh, piece of news, Alan, something we've known for many years, because of course, I've had customers report to me and all kinds of people say, hey, I'm drinking kombucha, and I notice I can take less insulin. Well, there was a human trial study conducted by Georgetown, it was a small trial, but it did show that those with type two diabetes had a lower fasting glucose rate when they consumed kombucha mm -hmm. versus a placebo beverage. So it's so exciting to see that some of these rat studies, and you know, of course, human anecdotal information is being validated through these types of trials. Okay, so uh, we're running out of time. Quickly tell people where they can get in touch with you and learn more about what Hannah Crum has to offer the world. Absolutely, kombuchacamp.com, that's camp with a K. And uh, we have a really great class coming up, the Side Hustle class. So if you in are interested in doing your own kombucha as a business, check it out. We'll have lots of details for you. Hannah, thank you so much for that wonderful conversation. Uh, I hope everybody has really learned a lot about what kombucha is. After this message, we'll be back with Jason Rosenberg of Remilk to learn about a new type of fermentation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner 
comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Now, our last guest talked about traditional, I guess you could say old-fashioned fermentation of kombucha with SCOBY, water, and sugar. Now, we're going to move on to something a little bit more exciting and new as we welcome Jason Rosenberg, the head of business development at Remilk. This Israeli trailblazer is not only challenging the norms, but reshaping them. With their cutting-edge fermented product, Remilk is producing dairy without a single cow in sight. No animals, just pure science and passion. So let's explore the dairy revolution with Jason. Jason, welcome aboard. Thanks, Alan. Thank you very much for, for, for having us here. I, 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 I want to say one, one quick comment on that and, and, and just something that came to mind as you were speaking. We definitely don't ever touch an animal, but we absolutely have used animals as inspiration. We'll, we'll talk to that in a little bit. Um, but really, we, 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 we love dairy from animals, and we just would like to reach that uh, uh, through a more sustainable, friendly process. Understood. Yeah. So before we drill down, tell me a little bit about Remilk, how it started, and most importantly, to your last point, uh, how it provides the answers to questions such as sustainability and alternative health issues. Yeah. So, uh, so Remilk is in, uh, a, an Israeli company established in 2019 uh, by, by our founders, Aviv uh, Wolf and Dr. Ariko Havi. Uh, with the mission of uh, uh, essentially producing identical dairy to what cows produce uh, through a more sustainable and animal-free process. Uh, so what we do at Remilk is produce dairy proteins or milk proteins, uh, which then enable the formulation of indistinguishable dairy products uh, like cheeses, yogurts, milk, ice cream, or really any, any other dairy product uh, uh, we, we can imagine. Uh, when it comes to how we are, are um, really addressing the climate challenges I think it's very important to first acknowledge the fact that cows are very strenuous on the environment as production systems for our food. Uh, and the main reason for this is that they have many purposes in life. 
And cows take a huge percentage of the inputs that, that, that they are receiving. So the energy, the food, the water, the land, et cetera, and converting that into an array of different activities. So they have to use that energy to walk and reproduce and build muscle tissue and fat tissue and sometimes produce a little bit of milk. Um, in our case, uh, and, and we'll talk to the technology momentarily, but microorganisms such as yeast have this Im immense capability of efficiently trans uh, uh, converting one energy source into one uh, uh, output because our yeast does not have many other tasks in life. And so that's really when we look at the sustainability impact, it's the fact that we are far more resource uh, uh, um, efficient and also producing far less waste because we're extremely hyper-focused on using all inputs uh, to, to end up in one specific output. Interesting. So if you were to look in, in our kitchen right now, you would find um, us fermenting some pickles, um, something that mm -hmm. we love to do. And that's traditional fermentation, or I don't know what you would actually call it. Yeah. The, pro the process that Remilk uses is precision fermentation. Can you explain a little bit about how that differs? Yeah, so I, I, I'd, I'd start with the very sort of simplistic explanation of, of precision as a concept, right? I mean, I, when, when you are fermenting your pickles at home, and I don't by any means uh, uh, mean to diss the complexity of, of, of or, or, you know, down talk the complexity of those processes. But when push comes to shove, they are relatively uh, uh, non-precise conditions. Our process, however, is extremely, extremely precise in the conditions that are, are maintained within our fermentation vessels, within the feedstock that is, is, is provided to our microorganisms to operate. But another piece of this is that, and if I take kombucha or pickles as, as an example of traditional fermentation, these are naturally occurring processes where sugars are, are consumed uh, and, and essentially converted into an array of different end products that combine together to give you this complex uh, 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 end result. In our process, yeast do not traditionally produce milk proteins. And so part, part of our precision fermentation process is also how we teach these uh, by using that inspiration from cows, essentially the, uh, uh, the genetic sequence from a cow that's responsible, or, or, or we can call it the recipe from a cow that's responsible for producing milk proteins into our yeast. And so then our yeast have this new recipe book or this new manual, and then given very precise conditions, end up producing one very precise product, which is a single defined protein in our case. Now, that's interesting. You mentioned yeast before. Mm -hmm. um, what made you start with yeast? I noticed that a lot of companies uh, use existing research or research that's been done elsewhere, some of which was, was you know, kind of old, whereas some new companies are using artificial intelligence to kind of figure out a formula. What led the company to, to go to yeast as a starting point? And beyond that, are there other substrates, meaning, you know, starting points, that would work just as well. So, so I, I, I will say at a high level that there could be very many different potential vehicles or, or starting points to, to end up achieving the same the same end result. But the reason that Remilk focused on yeast, or I'll, I'll begin by saying the reason that Remilk focused on microorganisms, right, on single cell organisms, is really for this this uh, extreme efficiency in doing one thing at a time. Um, and so, and so, as as yeast are only really capable of performing one activity at a time efficiently, 
if we can teach that yeast, the yeast how to perform the activity we would like it to perform, it ends up being extremely efficient. And if I take a step out from what we're doing and into the precision fermentation space that's existed industrially for about 70 years or so, uh, precision fermentation is used to produce uh, uh, therapeutic proteins and enzymes. Uh, most notably, uh, the, the world's insulin supply is, is produced through precision fermentation or rennet uh, or chymosin, the, the coagulating uh, enzyme in the cheesemaking process. Um, but the, the commonality to all of these therapeutic proteins and enzymes is that they are, they are very high-value, low-volume products. And dairy proteins or milk proteins are, are, are the opposite. Right, they are they are comparatively very low value, high volume, and so what we have identified in microorganisms and yeast specifically is extreme efficiency capabilities. And so it's not just about their ability to produce one gram of protein or two grams of protein or one kilogram of protein, but it's their ability to produce huge volumes of protein at very very efficient uh, uh, conversions. Now I want to get on to some of the product questions. But I was watching a presentation that Avi gave, I think last year, and he talked about the three key elements to transform the dairy industry, technology, operational excellence, and investments. Now, mm -hmm. which of these elements was the biggest stumbling block for most companies in the food space, and how did Remilk overcome that? Yeah, so it's a it's a great question, and um, you know, I, I I would say that from my perspective, it's a little bit staged and 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 over time, and so I think that if we look at the initial barrier, uh, it will always be technology. Techno having having adequate technology is your initial barrier to being able to start to produce a product and start to to access a market. As we look at what it will take to truly transform the dairy industry, we will need very very significant production capacity that may not exist today or it may not be suitable as it does exist today. And so um, I, I would say that, you know, from our perspective at Remo, the core is, is to focus on technology at all times while going out and identifying the relevant production facilities uh, that exist and can uh, uh, can actually be adapted and converted to, to suit our production process. Um, I, I will say that while, while financing is, of course, a, a huge factor, um, I, I believe that financing is actually... A, a, a very, very big barrier that exists for the industry if we look uh, uh, several years down the road when we truly look to make a transformation and not access the market and not just, you know, sort of build out this story and, and, and consumer awareness, acceptance and, and, and taste. Um, but really down the road, uh, we, we, do, we do understand that there will have to be very significant supply chains set up um, and, and that those will be, I would say, industry-wide challenges um, or, or, or barriers, but really at the, at the forefront, it's, it's having, having the best technology possible uh, and, and identifying creative opportunities to unlock production capacity uh, that, that allows for operational efficiency. Right. I, I guess I would call that scale. And yeah. I, I think that's the, a really huge issue to a number of companies in, in this space. Um, the ability, once they come up with something and they say, oh, this is great, we can create a couple samples of it. But when it comes to the business end, and that's creating its scale so that you can put it at a price point that people can can overcome, that they can afford, it becomes an issue. Now, I was going to say, when I spoke to Avi um, last year, 
Uh, you were in the process of building or talking about a, a large production facility in Denmark. Where is that right now? Yeah, so um, actually, that's a project that we we um, we we put on pause at about January of this year uh, to take on a, a different opportunity. It was really sort of a, a no brainer for us, and I'll I'll paint a, a little bit of a picture around that. But it's essentially, we set out to establish our own facility in Denmark with the understanding that it was the only way for us to reach the significant scale uh, with with the the right production capabilities. Uh, as we we had not yet identified any facilities on the planet that with their existing capabilities uh, could provide us with it, with access to that. Uh, and essentially, once we were able to identify and secure significant production capacity at an existing uh, facility, uh, that, that that gave us really the opportunity. This is a facility that's already producing at scale uh, uh, for us. Um, th- this enables us to really reach our production goals, our commercial goals, much faster uh, than anticipated at a lower cost. And so... Um, when push comes to shove, it was it was sort of a no brainer decision for us because of the opportunity to reach market uh, uh, quicker at at larger scale and at lower cost um, by, by by doing so through partnership. Now, does that kind of speak to the work that you're doing with General Mills? Then not not no. So I, what I would say, and and maybe if I, I um, touch on that briefly, you know, when we have actually two production processes. Right. And so the first production process is the production of the protein itself, which is, uh, you know, the, the raw material and the ingredient that goes into the formulation of the finished products. Um, but we will we, we will call our our protein for that sake of the matter, a, a, a an ingredient. And the finished product, which is the consumer focused product, such as a yogurt or a cream cheese or, or an ice cream. Uh, th- those are finished products that have to go through a secondary production process. Right. So we have our raw materials that will then enter the cheese production line, for example. Um, so so the, the work that we were doing with General Mills and we're doing with an array of, of, of other uh, uh, CPGs across the planet, uh, th- th- that's work more on the uh, finished product side, uh, whereas on the production of the protein side of things, um, we, we understand that it's, it's, it's a different ecosystem. And so we, 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 uh, we, we handle that ourselves along with uh, uh, some some partnerships and relationships with companies from the the production and fermentation space. So um, tell me a little bit more about the the product that you've created with General Mills. I think it's still relatively new to the market. How is it doing and what's been the reaction? So I, I, I actually, I can't speak to that product too much as, as, as it was a, um, a, a pilot product, essentially a, 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 a test uh, in market to sort of gauge uh, uh, some consumer understandings. Um, that that was a project that we set out uh, at the end of last year. It's actually um, uh, r- ran through the beginning of this year. Um, but I, I I can say in in regard to products in general that we work very very closely with the dairy companies on developing products. And one thing that we understand is that the likes of General Mills or the, or the large CPGs of the world um, have immense knowledge and capabilities when it comes to understanding their consumers, their channels. Uh, and, and and how to position the products in the right way to message to them. Um, while we at Remilk have immense, uh, 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 I, I would say, capabilities as well in the production of, of raw materials and the understanding on how to work with those raw materials. And so we have to work together to fine tune the right product for each market. And I think it's really important for us to be testing products together, for us to be putting products in market together. Uh, and 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 when and when it's done right, it really just just delivers identical, delicious, indistinguishable dairy. Definitely. So the dairy industry or the dairy realm of products is 
pretty large. Um, if you were to kind of see where your golden opportunity, which I think is both, you know, a demand as yeah. well as white space, uh, where where's the best entry point for alternative milk? You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question because I think that what we see here are so many different uh, considerations that come into play, such as the scale, the scale or the volume in a specific category or a specific channel, right? And and the uh, the existing alternatives that do exist in that category. And so, I, you know, I, I think that all of us and definitely the the, the listeners in the in the states would, would be aware of the the pretty significant penetration of plant based milks. Uh, with within the market, however, the lack of significant penetration of certain other categories in the dairy space, such as cheeses, and one of the one of the uh, uh, reasons or or potential reasons for that uh, is is the the reliance on functionalities or physical characteristics that stem from the ingredients of traditional dairy uh, that are not apparent in these plant based alternatives. And so, I, I don't know if you recall, but you know, some, some of these early plant based milks didn't really foam too well. And then they, some of the companies have come out with some barista additions to be able to sort of overcome the lack of that foaming functionality uh, by, by adding in some other, some other uh, uh, tricks to get there. Because our protein is chemically identical to the, the protein produced by cows, it also carries the same functional characteristics. And so, um, you know, I, I think that on the one hand, the biggest opportunity is in providing alternatives to those products that don't have uh, uh, suitable animal-free alternatives today. Uh, and, and at the same time, there's already a consumer demand uh, for alternative milk beverages, right? And so, and so I would say it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very, very interesting discussion, but the exciting opportunity that comes through precision fermentation, as opposed to certain other technologies out there, is that because the protein is identical to what cows produce, we can actually produce the entire array or, 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 you know, a, a spread of different uh, uh, dairy categories. Jason, I think we barely scratched the surface in this discussion, uh -huh. so I'm hoping to have you back. Uh, we've been talking to Jason Rosenberg, head of business development at Remilk. Uh, fascinating conversation. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back after these messages. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Now, first we started off with Hannah Crum, who talked about fermentation as it relates to kombucha, a drink that probably some of you have heard of, but to others, it may sound mysterious. Then we moved on to precision fermentation and how it's being used in the alternative protein space and a very highly scientific process. So we're now going to move on to what I call accessible fermentation. Fermentation that you will come across to every in your everyday lives. So let's start with the definition. So fermentation is a natural process in which microorganisms such as bacteria, yeast, or fungi convert sugars and starches into other compounds like alcohol or lactic acid, often resulting in preserved or transformed foods and beverages. Now, what we're going to do, um, some people have the top five, some people have the top 10. I have the top eight fermented products, and we're going to kind of go through them, talk about some of the brands, and in some cases, how you make them. So at the number one spot, we have sauerkraut. And if you watch any video at all on um, fermented food, sauerkraut always is number one. It's naturally fermented, and it's made from fermented cabbage and sometimes other vegetables. I've seen beets put in. I've seen fennel put in. And I've made it quite often. I don't eat it, but my wife does. And it's a pretty simple process. You uh, take a head of cabbage and you shred it. Um, I use a food processor to shred because it gives it a much more even kind of result. I then um, salt it. I put a, a, some, I don't know, two tablespoons of salt on it in a, a glass bowl, and I cover it with a lid that acts as a weight. You have to make sure you weigh it down because the goal is to get as much water out of it as possible. So once you think you've gotten all the water out of it, it's time to make a brine. And the brine will uh, go back to the days when you said, why do I need to learn algebra? Well, here's a case in which you do. The brine consists of anywhere between 2% to 3% of salt. So what you need to do is get your jar, see how much water it's going to hold. And of course, you want to use filtered water. And then you do some math. And that will tell you how much um, salt you're going to need. The, the best way to do this is in a jar specifically made for fermentation. And you can buy those online uh, during canning season here in the South. You can find them at pretty much any store, Ace Hardware, Walmart, or whatever. But I recommend a specific jar because they have a special lid that allows um, oxygen to um, remain within the jar itself. Now, it's not a very scientific process. Uh, you're going to have to do some trial and error. And a lot of it depends on the temperature in your house. So obviously, the warmer it is, the shorter it will take to, to reach its end result. And believe me, 
no sauerkraut that you get commercially in a store is going to be as good. Number two is miso. Miso is a Japanese seasoning produced by fermenting soybeans with salt and koji. Now, you have to make sure that it doesn't have fish-derived products if, like me and my wife, you're a vegan. Um, some varieties might. Now, as somebody who doesn't like soybeans in his diet, I found one made of chickpeas, and it comes from a brand called Miso Master. It's available at pretty much every health food store or higher-end uh, grocery store. And if you go online, you can also see how you can make your own chickpea um, uh, miso. And you can use it in recipes or make miso soup. The third, and of course, what we let off the show with is kombucha. So kombucha is, as Hannah pointed out, a fermented tea drink. And you can either get the SCOBY, which is the starter that kind of facilitates the fermentation. You can buy it online. Um, I bought my very first one in a health food store in Austin. But as Hannah pointed out, they seem to grow babies. And I'm talking triplets, quadruplets, quintuplets. Um, you will have more SCOBYs than you know what to do with, and you will build yourself a SCOBY hotel in the refrigerator. Now, um, I might be changing my position on this because Hannah said uh, you can't look at the amount of sugar uh, hard and fast, but I've been focusing on kombuchas that have, I don't know, maybe 11 or less um, carbs in them. And I want to mention kind of four brands that I'm particularly fond of. Um, one is, is uh, starts here in Florida, down in St. Petersburg, and it's called Mother's Kombucha. And we first tried it on tap uh, in uh, Dunedin, Florida, which is the spring training home of the Toronto Blue Jays. And it was fantastic. And then we found it uh, bottled. And it is also available at the farmer's market in um, St. Petersburg. And we've had the pleasure of meeting the folks behind it. And, and they're just wonderful people. And they've come up with a new product called Aquabucha, which is a flavored sparkling water. The second one is Rowdy Mermaid, which um, comes in a can, and it is very, very good and very, very um, probi full of probiotics. And as a side note, um, we definitely did not want to kind of talk about probiotics in this episode. I feel that in order to do that justice, we're going to need to have uh, some medical professionals on and people who are um, really smart about health. Um, so the other two brands, one is Hums. Hums is available pretty much everywhere. And believe it or not, I think it's on tap at T-Mobile Park, the home of the Seattle Mariners. And Better Booch, which is a um, booch, kombucha company in Southern California. Next is pickles. Now keep in mind, um, fermented pickles are only fermented with salt and water, no vinegar. So if you see pickles that have vinegar in them, then you know that they're not fermented. And Hannah pointed out something that, that was I found hilarious, and that is drinking pickle juice. Because when, when we were growing up, my dad drank pickle juice, and we thought it was the most disgusting thing in the world. But now I use pickle juice in a number of recipes. I use it in salad dressings. But again, um, this is in, in ones that we will not, um, they do not have vinegar in them. 
Uh, we also have vegan yogurt. And they, those come in, you know, almond, coconut, soy, cashew, or other plant-based milk. They go through a fermentation quite similar to dairy-based yogurts. And our favorite in that group is Kite Hill, although there's countless others. You then have vegan kefir, which is similar, but it's fermented using a vegan kefir grain or a water kefir grain. And my suggestion is that you, you know, do some investigation online and look at um, some YouTube videos on that. And then there's kind of one that there's just not enough of because it's fantastic and it's called kvass. Kvass is a fermented low alcohol beverage that in most cases is made from beets. And it sounds kind of disgusting, but I'm going to tell you what, once you try one, you will be hooked. People who uh, either visit Eastern Europe or have uh, an Eastern European background and their families would, would know a lot about kvass. And we had the pleasure of, of having some kvass um, in Riga, Latvia, outside their famous central market. It's fantastic. Uh, then there's other pickled vegetables, carrots, string beans, asparagus. And every now and then um, at Costco, you can find a giant jar of, of a brand called Foster's pickled asparagus, which is quite good. Um, you can look on Amazon to find um, other versions. Uh, there's a company called Stonewall Kitchens, which is the big brand in this space. You can actually order from them online and they have carrots, string beans, asparagus, and others. Now, something that I'm interested in learning a little bit more about and to kind of give you a sneak preview of an upcoming show um, where we talk about uh, alternative chocolate. In my conversation with the folks who are involved in alternative chocolate, we talked about the, the um, health benefits of of, of uh, fermented chocolate. And when I learned and know this from making chocolate myself, that the heating process that's used to make chocolate kills a lot of the healthy bacteria um, in the fermentation process. But we'll go into that more in an upcoming episode. I did find a company called Depura Vita that makes um, chocolate with probiotics in it. Now, in, in talking this over with my wife, um, I, the question that I wanted to know is, are these probiotics that are chocolate flavored or are these, um, you know, actual chocolates that are made with um, a probiotic or fermented process? So um, these are some suggestions on fermented products. Um, we're going to do some digging to come up with more over time. I'm, I'm sure you're going to be uh, really fascinated by it. So before we move on again, I want to thank our guests, Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp and Jason Rosenberg of Remilk. Um, I want you to stay tuned for our, our next segment. Uh, we're going to have a surprise that you're definitely not going to want to miss. We'll have some informational tidbits, but we're going to close with something uh, quite memorable. We'll be back with that after these messages. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner 
comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Now, before we get to our special surprise... Um, I want to do a segment that I'd like to end the shows with each week called Quick Bites of Insights. These are ideas and insights that really impact our world. Now, I hinted at this last week, but I want to talk about something called The Dirty Dozen. That is not the 1967 movie with Lee Marvin, Jim Brown, and a cast of thousands. This is a yearly list put out by the Environmental Working Group of 12 fruits and vegetables that contain the highest levels of pesticides. Now, it changes every year, but the Dirty Dozen this year include strawberries, spinach, kale, collard greens, and mustard greens, number four, peaches, pears, nectarines, number seven, apples, number eight, grapes, number nine, bell and hot peppers, number 10, cherries, number 11, blueberries, and number 17, green beans. At the same time, the Environmental Working Group also publishes a list of 15 fruits and vegetables with the least amount of pesticide. Keywords, least amount, not none, least amount. So 15, number one, avocado. Number two, sweet corn. Number three, pineapple. Number four, onions. Number five, papayas. Number six, sweet peas. Number seven, asparagus. Number eight, honeydew melons. Number nine, kiwi. Number 10, cabbage, for you fermenters out there. Number 11, mushrooms. Number 12, mangoes. Number 13, sweet potatoes. Number 14, watermelons. And number 15, carrots. Now, that, say, that said, I think it's important to um, clean your fruits and vegetables, no matter whether on the dirty dozen list or not. And I've done a little bit of research on Amazon on the best way to clean your produce. And 
There are dozens and dozens of produce sprays, liquids, and even a fruit and vegetable washing machine that uses an ion purification technology. Crazy. The actual answer and the best way to clean your fruits and vegetables is water. That's right. You just wash them and scrub them. And this is according to the National Centers for Poison Control in the US. I, I think it's important to really understand um, what, it, what happens to your fruits and vegetables in the field. So next I wanna kind of go on to, to something um, that really impacts the very topics that we cover here. And that is, uh, last week we had Amy Chen, CEO of Upside Foods, and we were all quite excited about the fact that Upside Foods was one of the first two companies in the United States to get approval um, for selling uh, their lab-cultured, lab-grown cultured meat. Now, apparently not everybody in the world is excited about that. Uh, it was mentioned in some news articles recently that Italy has actually banned the use and growing of lab-grown meat with um, some pretty heavy fines. Now, Italy's reason is, as I understand it, that it is against their culture as a food country. Um, and I'm not quite sure I understand that, but um, you know, I've been to Italy and I've eaten food in Italy, so I can't say that they're that far off course. Second is Mexico. Now, Mexico um, is not going to allow lab-grown meat. Again, there will be fines to pay there. And um, I think in this case, in, in doing a little bit of thinking about it, it could be um, because of such issues as a, a very vibrant meat culture and meat um, producing business. So it makes you wonder whether companies like Brazil and Argentina that are leading meat producers are, are going to um, follow suit. So before we get into our wrap up and we talk about some of our coming shows, here's a little bit of the surprise I have. So if anybody is familiar with artificial intelligence, you are familiar with um, something called chat GPT. Um, so I went to chat GPT and I said, hello, Mr. Chat GPT, write me a poem about fermented foods. And here's what it came up with. In a world where nature weaves her dance, fermented foods arise given a chance. A cabbage once crisp now dons a new robe, transformed in the dark in a crock's cozy globe. Kimchi ignites with its fiery delight while sauerkraut's tang dances light in the night. Soybeans once plain turn deep, rich, and bold as miso and tempeh their stories unfold. Yogurt spins tales of cultures combined with probiotics adding the gut's design. Kombucha that tea with its fizzy refrain dances on tongues and revives the mundane. Cheeses mature from a milk's humble start, evolving to art with a cultured evolving to art with a cultured heart. Nature's alchemy slow and profound in these fermented treasures is found. For in their depths a mystery brews, the old made a new life cycle renews. So 
Um, I hope you like that. I'm going to come up with more fun things from artificial intelligence. So in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about alternative proteins. As I said before, we're going to um, look at chocolate and the interesting things about chocolate. And then we're going to have a, a fun uh, episode um, going to be attending Expo East, a natural food show in, in uh, the East Coast in next month. And hopefully we're going to um, be able to report from the floor there. So again, you know that the audience is crucial to Food Forward. And we want to hear from you. You can email me at alan at foodforwardradio.com and or follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you miss an episode live, it is available on all leading podcast platforms. Think of it as radio on demand. So for Food Forward, Nourishing the World, this is Alan Weiner saying goodbye. Look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.